This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 69 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and on this episode I am joined by Julian Fellows, the creator, sole writer, and executive producer of the acclaimed drama series Downton Abbey, which came to an end this year after six remarkable seasons. The 66-year-old Brit, who was nominated for eight Emmys during the show's run and won two, is tremendously fascinated with the subject of class and the interactions and tensions between classes. It's been a running thread through his writing ever since 2000, when he began writing what would become his first produced screenplay for the 2001 Robert Altman film Gosford Park which ultimately brought him the Best Original Screenplay Oscar. And it's remained a major theme in his work even since Downton came to an end. In Dr. Thorne, a four-part miniseries that debuted on Amazon Prime in May. In Belgravia, a serialized novel that he's released through an app. And in The Gilded Age, the next drama series on which he set his sights, which he's doing for NBC. Not that class is the only thing he understands how to do. He's also written, if you can believe it, the books for the Broadway musical adaptations of Mary Poppins and School of Rock, the latter of which earned him a Tony nomination this year. Over the course of our conversation, Fellows opens up about the deeply personal roots of his interest in class, about how he wound up spending decades of his life prior to Gosford Park as a character actor on both sides of the Atlantic. You might have caught him in, for instance, the 1997 Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies. And he talks about how and why he eventually began transitioning away from acting and towards writing, which has become the entire focus of his life in recent years. He explains how, on Downton, without the aid of a writer's room, he managed to juggle so many different characters and storylines. How he was already familiar, personally, with the sorts of lives that people lived during the period of 1912 through 1925 in which the show was set, and how audience reactions to major events in the characters' lives and to the series finale impacted him. Most importantly to some of you, he talks about why he hopes we haven't seen the last of the Crawleys yet and how they might reappear in the future. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you so much for coming in and doing this. And uh, to begin with, we always ask our guests where they were born and raised and what their parents did for a living, just out of curiosity. Um, I was, in fact, born in Cairo, the the capital of Egypt, uh, because my father then was a diplomat and he was second secretary or something, I forget now, in the embassy. And um, my parents lived out there. Uh, for a couple of years, but um, I came back to England as a baby, so I don't really have any memory of Cairo at all. But but it was quite interesting, because much later on, uh, when I was about 11, I'd always traveled on my mother's passport, and in those days, you just wrote in your children's names, you know, it was was all this security (laughs) stuff. And um, and then when I was 11, they were in Nigeria, because my father was by then working for Shell, and he was head of Shell in Nigeria. 
and um, I had to travel on a separate passport. And when they applied for one, they said, well, no, this, this boy was born in Cairo, and uh, you were born to my father, you were born in Canada, and your father was born in Australia, all true, because right. it was an army family. I'm afraid he's Egyptian, you better get him an Egyptian passport. <laughs> and um, I remember I was in the drawing, my father came back, my mother said, well, and my father said, well, I'll tell you what I've done. I bought the boy a fez, and he put it on his head. But um, now I can't remember how it was fixed. I right. suppose if some string was pulled and right. I was given a British passport. But it was a slight drama at the time. Terrific. Well, class and the interactions and tensions between classes have been a running thread through a lot of your work. And I was fascinated to learn that that really dates back to the very early in your life in the sense that your parents, there was some uh, perhaps discrepancy in their backgrounds that interested you. And then also I read about a time, I think you were 17, where you literally uh, were at the brink of the upstairs, downstairs divide accidentally. And so can you just talk about those things and how this became one of your great interests? Um, I think in a sense, it, 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 it's kind of uh, with the wisdom of hindsight people kept asking me why was I interested in class because by the time I was a young man certainly it was fashionable to pretend it didn't exist anymore and there was no such thing everyone had forgotten about all that and everything complete nonsense of course I mean it's alive and well in 2016 but nevertheless people would say these things because they wanted you to think that's what they thought Um, and so you do start trying to slightly analyze why you, you are curious about it Uh, and I think uh, as you said it came originally because my parents backgrounds didn't really match my father came from a uh, sort of gentry family whatever you call that I mean my grandfather was a younger son nobody had any money I mean there was nothing any grand going on but nevertheless our births were recorded in Burks and all this sort of thing that was not my mother's background. My mother, um, my mother's father was a civil servant, quite a successful one in the Postmaster General's department. But you know, they lived a sort of suburban, middle-class life, and um, she was a great beauty, and much painted. People would do her portrait. You know, she was Miss Speed at mm-hmm. London University, and was always being mistaken for an actress called Louise Brooks. Oh, I don't know sure. if you yeah, remember, with the with, with the bangs, bangs hair yeah. and all that. And my father's family, I now realize, although as a child, you glimpse these things through a glass darkly, but um, they thought she'd caught him. And uh, my great aunt's plan, because they didn't approve my grandmother either, actually, not that she was uh, not well born, she was quite well born, but she was mad and a sort of (laughs) flapper and they thought irresponsible. And my grandfather had died in the Great War at 29. So they thought it was their responsibility, this sort of phalanx of aunts to to save my father from his mother and to get a respectable marriage and get him on the way. And what was their horror when he turned up with this girl with no background that they would recognize. So actually it was perfectly respectable, you know, they they sort of behaved as if she'd been selling violets in Covent Garden, but I mean, that wasn't it. Um, And you know how clever women are. I mean, she picked up the the way of doing things very quickly. Um, 
but nevertheless. And all my childhood, I remember my great aunt sort of slighting her and tolerating her <laughs> and never welcoming her. We would be dropped off to have tea, to have lunch and whatever it was. Uh, and they would be very affectionate to my father if he would make an appearance, but not to my mother. Yeah. And I think those things, a child looks at them and they don't quite know what they're looking at, but they know something's going mm -hmm. on. And later, you know, rather like the children of an unhappy marriage, mm -hmm. when they're very young, they don't quite get it, but they get something. Mm -hmm. And I would see um, my mother, who was very confident, very funny woman, actually. But I would see how she was undermined by all this. And they would come and stay and she would be nervous and and then, you know, I remember there was one wedding of some cousin of my father's and she wouldn't go because she didn't feel she had anything to wear and all that. She was very unlike her in any normal right. context. And I think from that, I came to understand gradually when I was sort of 16, 17, the damage that class can inflict on life, how it is a sort of invisible weapon how it can be used to batter people and subdue them and make them feel inferior and make them feel out of place and so on. I mean, of course, now it's, it's almost laughable because the difference between someone from the lower gentry and the professional middle class is sort of nil. I mean, if your child came back with, with such a partner, you wouldn't think anything of right, it. Right. But in the 30s, of course, the world was a different place. And uh, it certainly did affect her life. Uh, I mean, she, she dealt with it by becoming um, quite uh, anarchic. And rather than society, she sort of collected artists and writers and politicians and general kind of wackos. And that was her, <laughs> that was her preferred private life. Right. Some of it very interesting. I mean, our neighbors in the country, for instance, were Roland Penrose and his wife Lee Miller, you know, the great um, early American photographer, and the ones photographed sitting in Hitler's bath and all that. So they were our next door neighbors. And so it wasn't that we didn't know interesting people, we knew tremendously interesting mm -hmm. people, but they were not my father's old people. Right. And um, when I was older, when I was about 18, 19, I was picked up by this rather curious old guy called Peter Turner. He used to collect young men and young girls for the London season and he would sort of in a way run it. And you would be vetted. You were in, If your name was in one of the stud books, you would be invited for a drink and he would vet you and then you would right. be put on the list for hostesses who didn't know enough boys, whatever. And, um, and I went into that. And, and I think my mother was sort of in a way slightly irritated. I think she... Looking back, she saw this sort of sticky hand coming out of the past and taking her young, you know. <laughs> um, but it, what it did mean is that I had a rather inside-outside position in all this. Um, I was inside in that I was on the list and I did go to the things, but I had enough of my mother in me to look at these people and kind of judge them really that sounds harsh but I think I I didn't just go along with it right. all and and really that was 
the kernel of what much later became one of the main strands of my writing career, really. So when you go off to Cambridge, uh, how did your interest in acting emerge and how did that go over with your folks? Because acting, as we uh, see with, I believe, Carson and Downton Abbey, was (laughs) not always regarded as the most uh, proper profession to pursue for people of means. Um, I acted at school to a degree. Uh, and then I went, as you say, to Cambridge, to Magdalen Cambridge, and, and I went into the Footlights, and I went into the Trinity Drama Society, and so on. I couldn't get into um, the main one. I forget what it was called now, the ADS or something. And um, they wouldn't have me. But I got into the others. Um, I'm happy to say I was the only one of that year I think who became a professional actor so Yabu sucks (laughs) but um, I don't think my parents initially saw it as anything more than a student activity you know as if I was in the historical society or something or other Um, it was really in my third year that I kept thinking what am I going to do what am I going to do and then I went to see this film um, called I'll never forget what's his name which was directed by, of all unlikely inspirations, Michael Winner. And you know how when you're young, a particular film, a particular pop song, just somehow strikes something in you, seems to touch you. There's always a song attached to a failed love affair, you know, and you play it again and again, (laughs) boo-hoo. And um, the film did that sort of thing to me. And I started to think, I don't have to be interested in films, because I was, I used to go to eight, ten films a week. But I thought it was my hobby. And then I thought, maybe it doesn't have to be my hobby. Maybe it could be what I'm going to do. My parents were unusual in that they were very keen on films, which most of their contemporaries of their type were not particularly. I mean, I don't mean they never went. but uh, And also even more unusually, my mad zany grandmother, my father's mother, who'd been a sort of flapper, was crazy about films. Right. <laughs> and so he spent half his childhood in the dark of an auditorium, you know, with sort of flickering silence going. And so the concept of being very interested in film was not alien to them. They, they got that. Um, and I think they were sufficiently sort of wild that uh, there wasn't a particular career I was expected to do. I mean, my ancestors had on the whole been in the Navy, in the Army, They'd farmed, you know, been in the church. Nobody expected any of that. <laughs> and because we weren't a professional family, we weren't lawyers or bankers, worse luck, um, there wasn't any pressure. But, I mean, the main, main issue, really, for my... My mother didn't mind. She, saw, she thought it was kind of a hoot. <laughs> I was the youngest son. My eldest brother was an accountant, you know, all that. She thought it was a hoot. And she thought drama school would be fun, whatever came of it. And so I didn't really have any opposition from her. My father's problem was a much more practical one. He just didn't think I'd earn a living. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he knew that I liked to live reasonably well. Right. He didn't see an acting career delivering this. I wasn't good looking. I mean, I was as plain as a pumpkin. <laughs> and, uh, and also it was the time in 
Britain of the rise of the working class actor. Well, it was I Albert Finney and all yeah, of that. I mean, we're just to remind folks, this is the kitchen sink drama. All of it was yeah. coming on Finney, yeah, Michael Caine, Terrence Stamp, Richard Harris, Alan Tom Bates, Courtney. Tom Courtney. Uh, that was the prevailing wind. And you just, because of your accent and your aura and whatever, you felt that that, that was a tougher sell to fit in with that group? Well, I, it wasn't only that I felt I wouldn't fit in with that group. It was that the casting directors, the, the directors, felt I wouldn't fit in with that group. And also, there's always been a thing in our business that they're quite happy to cast an actor who comes from a working class background as an aristocrat but they'll never do the other way round and that's true in America actually yeah sure Um, so you're up against that but I mean in the end acting as a broad church and there's always a lot of different stuff going on I think if if I had to give any advice and I don't think my advice is worth taking for the most part but I mean if I did to a young actor I would say Find what it is that you are. Find what you're bringing to this show that nobody else is quite bringing, or at least not a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, even if it's something that's a little bit wacky, there's going to be some work for you. The problem is when all you're bringing is what everyone else is bringing. Right, right. Um, and, And then if you're the young, pretty girl, the young, handsome guy, and I mean... Of course, if you make it, that's the best career there is. But for every one that makes it, there's a million that don't. Now, the reason that you left England briefly to go and act in America or to pursue acting in America was because you felt that there you might have a better shot at getting a fair hearing in America? Well, to be honest, I did think that. And history has proved me absolutely correct. (laughs) Uh, America has given me my career, both as an actor and as a writer. I mean, I was up against a certain amount of... My politics were also wrong. Right, because you're a conservative. I'm a conservative. I always was. I couldn't... I knew it was a mistake, but I couldn't fake it because I was too political. I think if you're not very political, then you can fake it to a degree. You just don't talk about it. You You know, you let it lie down. But I wasn't sensible enough to do that. And at that time, sort of in this too, but, but now people are less didactic than they were in the 70s. But in the 70s, in the industry, if you weren't a supporter of the Labour Party, you were a bad person. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was simply no middle ground. Right. And I remember a casting director at the National saying to me, there was a director who wanted me for a restoration comedy and had asked for me and she blocked my booking and she told me I'm not letting this happen horrible woman so I won't name her (laughs) but uh, but I'm not letting this happen because I feel your type of actor is better off on the other side of the river in other words not at the National but in the West End where trivial you know sort of um, populist commercial entertainment is going on and then I walked out of that interview and I thought, I gotta get out of here, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, th- there is a level of brick wall where it's just right. fruitless right. to keep banging your head against it. Things had gone quite well. I had been in the West End. I'd done two or three hit shows and I, that was just at the end of doing um, Present Laughter with Donald Sinden. I played Roland Moore, good part. 
Uh, and that had all been quite successful, but that wasn't the career I wanted. I didn't want to be a West End comedy actor falling downstairs for the rest of my life. And um, an opportunity arose to get a green card. A friend of mine in America knew I was thinking about this and she saw a job advertised where, you know, sometimes they list six things and you've got all six. Right, right, right. And it was one of those. Wow. And I got the job as a kind of West, End, uh, West Coast representative uh, of a PR firm. And um, I was just feeding information and doing the odd article and that kind of thing. It was pretty easy and I wasn't paid very much, but it was enough right. to get me a card. Then, funnily enough, my employer was joined Reagan's government. I can't remember why or how, but anyway, he did. But by then I had the card, so everything's right. fine. And I was in Hollywood for about two years, two and a half years. And I did certain amount of stuff. I mean, um, I remember I was always playing sort of mysterious foreigners, you know. I, I, I used to, I remember I would come out from under staircases saying, you don't worry, princess, all will be well, you know. But, um, but it was fun. I did a couple of movies with Linda Carter. I had a sort of running part in a series um, playing a camp um, maitre d' of a hotel in California. And, you know, it was all, I mean, none of it was quite Sarah Siddons Award, you know, but... but <laughs> Um, it was sort of good fun. Um, but then I had a sort of learning experience because there was a film being cast at Disney and there was a subsidiary baddie to be the co-baddie with an actor called Patrick McGoohan, who you may yeah, remember. Of course. And this description was kind of me. And I couldn't get an interview and my agent tried and tried. It wouldn't see me, it wouldn't see me. Then I had to go back to London for something completely different. I can't remember some kind of family related thing or whatever. And I was, while I was in London, my English agent rang up and said, they want to see you for a Disney film. Of course, it was the same movie. Right, right. And, you know, would you go along? And I, and I went to this interview and I was given the part and it was great. And I was 10 weeks filming in East West Africa in Cote d'Ivoire uh, and everything. Um, it was a very good film, but we'll pass over that lightly. And, um, <laughs> And I remember I said to the director at one point, how is it that I couldn't see you in LA? And then immediately, I know sooner on terra firma in England than I have a, a, a spot with you. And he said, oh God, he said, I don't really remember that. But all I remember is that we decided that the only really good English actors in, in Los Angeles were famous. And if we wanted to cast the other parts, we'd get much better actors if we went to England. <laughs> so I thought, and then I better come back, back to England. England. Right, right, right. So I did go back to England. And um, actually what Hollywood had done for me, which made it a very productive period, was while I was in England before, drama school in British training then, and probably now, but certainly, hundred years ago, um, was very theatre, 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 theatre. Though the theatre's the thing, they've got to get back on the boards, you know, all this. And in the end, you know, rather like Goebbels proved, if you say the same thing again and again and again, you kind of, people get to believe it. And I had got caught up in this and I was in the theatre and I was in the West End. I was, And I had lost touch with the fact that I had originally gone into the industry because I was interested in film. Mm -hmm. 
and camera, television as well, sure. camera. And Hollywood gave that back to me. While I was there, obviously everything I did was on camera, but also I was surrounded by people working in the industry. I was sharing a house with Anthony Andrews. He was working in the industry. I had friends there. They would show me scripts. And, you know, I've been offered this by Fox. What do you think? And I would go through it and say, well, the first half works, but then the logic goes on. Right. And so it, A, was the beginning of my script training, but also it reminded me that that's what I wanted. Right. And it didn't mean I'd never do another play. I never again lost sight of what it was that I wanted, which was to be a factor in the film industry, to be a player. And I mean, I'm not in the least psychic, you know, I can get eight hours in a room where someone was strangled three hours earlier. <laughs> but I do think that in terms of achievement, it is helpful to have a very clear idea of what it is that you want and what you're going for. I know that when I'm introduced to young people who want to come into the industry or whatever, if they come in and they say, I've done this and I've done this and I've produced this film and I've written this and I've done thing and I'm thing and what I've just got to do is meet something like that, you do everything you can to help them. Because you know, this boy, this girl are so motivated and they've come up against a block, but it's a block you can get them over and then they're going to keep moving. If they say, well, I haven't really decided, I don't know if I want to act, or maybe I want to write, or maybe I want to present, <laughs> nothing's ever going to happen no, for right. them. You give them a cup of tea, right. you wish them well. Now for you, the, the clarifying what it was that you wanted to or ended up doing really happened, I believe, once you were back in England and... How did, how did writing enter the equation? Well, what happened is I, I sort of felt, my life changed actually. I got back to England and I sort of potted on for a few years. Um, and then I got married. I met the girl I was gonna marry and I got married a year and a half later. Um, and in a way that kind of changed me I think it changed me in two ways one that my ambition became much more kind of solidified I had a child within a year and I thought I I get the show on the road you know right. in that way but I think also um, I, I, I always say I smelled differently I think I became less desperate I was much happier mm -hmm. apart from anything else mm -hmm. I, I I was happier and so I sort of seemed happier um, and my career did start to get going also in a way I was 40 I think my looks were better at 40 than they'd been at 25 um, my persona worked better for middle-aged people you know there are all those other elements in casting and I started to get some quite good work and Danny Boyle cast me so I remember as soon as I got back from my honeymoon Danny Boyle cast me in a miniseries as a lead. It was called For the Greater Good. Mm -hmm. And it was a marvelous part. Um, I had quite an interesting thing on that, actually. I went to the interview and, I, and you know, I came back and my agent rang said, they want you for the part. And they want you for the part of whatever it was called, Wyndham or something. And they sent the scripts over and I read the scripts and I thought there'd been a mistake because this guy was a lead, one of the leads. 
And I rang my agent. I said, I don't think they want me for Wyndham. So can we find out what they do want me for before I make a decision? She rang back. She said, no, no, it's Wyndham. That's what they want you for. And I then had this moment, this Damascene realization that the person who'd been keeping me out of leading roles was me. And I had not imagined that that was my place. And it was my place. So um, I did that part. And then a lot of other things followed that, was, that were interesting. And I did a movie with Catherine Deneuve. And I was in one of the Bond pictures. And I had various other stuff going on. It was all um, quite interesting. And I um, did a wonderful series actually called Aristocrats, where I for once had a sort of normal emotional life, which was normally <laughs> denied me on screen. And then I was cast in a, in a, in a series called um, Monarch of the Glen, which I was in for five years. Yeah. But during that time, um, I had thought maybe I should have some kind of plan B. Mm -hmm. And my plan B, I thought, would be uh, to take up work as a producer for television. Uh, I'd done a certain amount of children's television already. I thought I knew how it worked. In those days, it was a small and separate department at the BBC. It isn't now, actually. Mm -hmm. It's all in part of the main thing. But in those days, it was. And I thought that was an easier way in. Um, and we took these ideas. Uh, and one of them we sold. But we spent all the money on scripts that we had and they didn't really work and maybe my wife always says I'm being unjust maybe I am but anyway I ended up rewriting them and for nothing right and they got made the show did pretty well so suddenly was, you're a writer it was the only kids show in the top 10 sales yeah. and, and of the year and so then they commissioned me to write right. a version of Little Lord Fauntleroy and, and suddenly I was a TV writer. Um, and then I did another series. I mean, the funny thing was that, of course, because I'd taken my eye off my acting career, it immediately improved exponentially. <laughs> and, uh, and I was very busy as an actor during this period. But then I left uh, the BBC Children. Well, I didn't leave. The head of department left and the new one wanted a new team you know which is the way these things go and I started to write film scripts on spec because I didn't want to only write for children for the rest of my life <laughs> and one of those spec scripts was a version of the Eustace Diamonds by Anthony Trollope which has not been made thus far but anyway um, and I wrote it for a chap called Bob Balaban who is an actor producer rather a distinguished one and um, he was trying to set up a film with Robert Altman uh, which would sort of be a version of the country house murder mystery but as a device to look at that way of life and they couldn't find a writer you know why I cannot tell you I've always thought it was the influence of my dead mother sort of <laughs> refusing to let anyone else accept the job, coming to them in dreams. Right. But um, anyway, uh, he, he, Altman thought he'd come to a dead end. And then Balaban said, well, there is this guy right, and, right. you know, this is his bag. <laughs> and so he suggested me and I had a sort of rather awkward uh, international telephone conversation when I was in London and, and Balaban was in New York and 
Bob Altman was down in Dallas, I think, or anyway, making a film somewhere. Right. And um, we were sort of terrible line and everything. But we got to the point when I had to send across some character ideas. Um, of course, I rushed out and took out of the, in those days, video library, every Altman picture I could find. Because you know. at this point, the character's ideas, the character sketches was just probably to sort of check you out. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked at every Altman movie. Right. Uh, because I wanted to write a movie that he would then recognize as, this is my movie, you know, this is an Altman picture. Meaning millions of characters, overlapping dialogue. Millions of overlapping dialogue, right. overlapping arcs, right. different narratives, right. all interplatted, right. some overall, some little arcs that are just told in three or four scenes, all these different aspirations and dreams. One scene with 16 right. characters serving seven stories, all of it. I made all these notes, right. and I wrote, first of all, characters, and then I was commissioned to do a first draft. Um, I mean, surprisingly, many of the character arcs wound up in the final movie. Wow. But um, I then wrote a script, uh, absolutely tailored to him. And... Um, I got this response back. This uh, the original telephone call was in January 2000, and then in, I think, July, uh, they said, would I fly over to California for, to talk to Bob for three days? And it was interesting for me because when I left California to come back uh, in, after the baby experience, um, I thought to my, I always enjoyed California. I'm not one of those Englishmen who hates LA and everything. I've always had a good time there. Right. But I thought to myself, no, I've done my scouting. The next time I fly to California, someone else is paying for the ticket. That's good, yeah. And it happened. And I got on the airplane and they paid for the ticket. It happened and it's Robert Altman. This is and a it was Robert Altman yeah. paid my ticket. And the other thing, which was more fundamental really, was that... I had never believed that this would actually come off because it just seemed too wild that, you know, this actor is suddenly asked to write a script for a well-famous <laughs> film director and it gets made. It was like the script of a Mickey Rooney musical. <laughs> and so I'd never believed, I knew I had to do my best. I knew I had to try as hard as I could, but I never believed it. And Bob Altman told me on that visit that he had never believed it would really happen until he read the first draft. So we had both been humoring each other for the first chunk, and we came to a point of thinking this film might get made at precisely the same moment. And what's amazing also is that the idea of what the movie would potentially be about was really his, right? But it happens to be the exact area of interest that you've had for most of your life. Well, that was my great good fortune. There's always a lot of luck involved, and anyone who tells you there isn't is lying. Um, I was very fortunate that it was not only an area of real interest to me, but a very unfashionable topic. So most of the writers he approached thought it was a stupid idea <laughs> and didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so it came to me Uh, I mean, all the main writers were approached and they all turned it down, even though for most of them it was their only chance to write an Altman movie. Right. 
So it was rather extraordinary. They thought they were being set up to fail. They yeah. thought they were being set up to fail. Um, I realized it was the chance in a lifetime. Right. Um, and where I was very lucky with Bob was, you know, he had this kind of mixed feeling about scripts, but he was a very clever man. And he knew that in this, for this movie, he didn't know anything about these people at all. They were not his clan on any level. <laughs> he didn't even know very many of them. Right, right. And so he asked me to come on the set um, to make sure he didn't make mistakes by accident. He didn't mind making a mistake on purpose if it was explained to him and he decided to do it anyway. Right. But what he didn't want to find is that he, when he'd cut together the scenes, it was full of errors. Yeah, it was screwed up at that point. And of course, in a way that empowered me to protect the script in a way that some of his other writers were not able to. Um, although he worked with writers much more than the popular yeah. uh, legend. <laughs> Where they think it's all improvised, the whole thing. And, yeah, right. I mean, um, I would say it's not, you know, that's not the whole truth. Right. Um, but uh, it was quite hard because when you're on the set to prevent a mistake, it means that all you ever do is say no. Mm -hmm. Because if everything's going swimmingly, you don't say anything. Right, right. You don't keep saying, very good idea for a right. shot, Bob, you know. <laughs> you just shut up. Right. And then you have to say no, she wouldn't be in the dining room, she isn't Lady Smith, she's Lady Mary, they wouldn't be eating this, they wouldn't be wearing gloves, Bob. He'd take his hat off, Bob. They wouldn't have a napkin, Bob. Well. That stuff wears a little thin right. <laughs> when you're getting up at four in the morning to direct a movie. Right, right. And so I can't pretend it was all plain sailing. <laughs> but it seems, though, that the real legacy of that, which you couldn't have known at the time, but there's a few. First of all, you've now been exposed on the other side of the camera to the making of, of, of a major project like that. Secondly, Dame Maggie Smith. Uh, and then additionally... What ended up happening where at 52 years old, for your first produced screenplay, you win an Oscar. All of this, in a very real sense, must have paved the way for the eventual return to this subject matter in Downton a few years later, right? Oh, absolutely. And also, I mean, I want to bang on a bit more about Bob Altman because this was a relationship that I owe everything to. Not many people can say that. Normally, if they are what's called successful, there are many different moments and tributaries. But for me, it was Bob Altman who opened the iron door. He wouldn't let the studio started to panic at one point about the film. They didn't really understand the script. And that moment when we had the servants taking their employers' names below stairs, and which was all perfectly true. But I remember they rang up, they said, Bob, this script's already got more characters than the Second World War, and now they've all got the same name. And they wanted to replace me, uh, in the immortal Hollywood phrase, for a polish, mm -hmm. which you and I know means a rewrite. Right, right, right. And he wouldn't let them. And he refused point blank. Now, normally, the director comes to you and says, Julian, if it was up to me, you know, let's meet for a drink. <laughs> and that's the end. And he point blank refused. Right. 
and they hummed and hawed and they argued and it, and you know it wasn't a huge film but it was quite a lot of money mm -hmm. and they'd never heard of me I'd never had a film produced and he just said no so although in some ways we were engaged in a kind of 10-week wrestling match behind the camera <laughs> I also owe him everything right and that was entirely the reason why I was alone on the stage and almost certainly on the stage at all uh, in LA yeah. because he the point about Bob was he he kind of got it he understood the point of the script and he understood all, all the little gags and all that stuff yeah. and uh, some people were slow to come to it well, he understood it because you tailored it to, to him. him so that was yeah. uh, but now Connecting it to Downton, I just have to ask, who, the, another thread that connects it, I think, is this person who people may not know, Gareth Neem, who I guess initially raised the idea for Downton with you, and you initially resisted it from what I've read. Yes, um, all that is true. I mean, I'd had, Gosford had happened some years before, and I'd had a certain amount of luck, you know. I had some bestsellers and Mary Poppins yes, and various other things, sure. Victoria and all that. And he and I were trying to set up something completely different at the BBC, in fact. Neem. Uh, Gareth Neem yeah. and I. And um, it nearly went, and then it was going, and then it wasn't going, and then we thought we got it away, and then we hadn't. And, and we were having dinner to sort of mark the end of it because uh, you know a very important gift certainly in show business as in romance is to know when something's not going to fly <laughs> and not waste too much more time on it and um, we were talking and then he out of nowhere in the middle of dinner he said would you ever consider going back into Gosford Park territory for television and the reason I was a bit resistant at the beginning, I, it, it felt a bit greedy. It was like going back to my early hit and sort of shaking it to try and make <laughs> it deliver some more plums, you know. Right. And, and I was, I don't know, I sort of thought about it. But then I was reading this book um, called To Marry an English Lord about the American girls, the so-called buccaneers, many of whom came over in the 1880s and 90s and with their lovely dollars that the English families were in such need of and they married into the upper class. I mean, quite a lot of them, about 350, 400 of them married into different layers of the, of the British aristocracy. And as I was reading it, I thought the thing is, we know all about those lovely young girls running down the gangplank into the arms of the Duke of Roxborough, the Duke of whatever. Um, but what was it like for them afterwards? Because many of them outlived the way of life they had been sent over to save. Um, all they had done was delay the fall. <laughs> and how was it? And I'm, I've always been interested by people who can live in a foreign country, who emigrate and live in a foreign country and maybe marry a national of that country and have children who are essentially foreign to them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the English woman with American children, the German woman with French children, whatever it is. How does that work? How do you 
sort of support yourself, protect yourself when you are essentially an alien within your own family. Um, it's always fascinated me. And I started to think about having a character who was one of these American girls, but 25 years later when they've got grown up children, but their children are English and are not sharing their prejudices and their beliefs and their original education. I mean, the education of American girls in the 1860s and 70s was very much advanced on what was going on in Western Europe. And that was one of the reasons they were such a success when they came to London and Paris and Rome, is that they spoke about things, they had opinions, they talked about politics, they got into all sorts of stuff at the dinner table, these girls at 19, when the English girls were just sort of sitting there staring at their fan, waiting for someone to ask them to dance. <laughs> and, and I thought it was fun to do that. So in a way, I had really imagined Cora Grantham. And you know, once you start to imagine characters, you, you've begun, really. I mean, you've accepted the job, even though you don't know it. And in this case, this is the first time that you're creating your own characters for a TV uh, purpose. And PBS initially, uh, from what I've read past, you, I guess, because not because they didn't like the idea, but because I think they felt they had upstairs, downstairs, they, this might be too much of that sort of thing. This is a masterpiece. This is a, a, I think, a newspaper um, invention. It's not because true. Okay. I've read in the papers yeah. that the BBC turned it okay, down. Okay, okay, okay. And then we went to ITV, but we didn't go to BBC. Okay, so it was always ITV. We it was always ITV, and it was always Peter Fincham from the very beginning. He's left ITV now, but um, he was king then. Okay. And um, we had a sense, or I say we. Gareth had a sense that this was right for what Peter was looking for as a kind of flagship series. And what was interesting was that given the kind of accepted truth at that time, period drama was dead. The audience had gone, nobody cared, uh, and everything had to be contemporary. But Peter had a notion that the reason period drama was dead was nobody was making any, and that if they made some, people would watch it. And he had this very strong hunch. And it's interesting because everyone told him he was wrong. And when he committed to Downton, I mean, it was very straightforward. We went, we had a pitch meeting. Um, I, the first episode was commissioned. We had another meeting. The whole thing was commissioned. It was made. That's how With the it was. intention initially of being just a one-off, one-series, mini-series, the category that it won at the Emmys, right? Well, you... I mean, in British television, it's, it's much safer than here. And so nothing, no first series is ever more than a, a single series <laughs> right. in case. Right. And you have to construct it and indeed even write it, that if that's all there ever is, that's it. So it has to have closure, resolution. Because they never picked it up until halfway through transmission. Wow. They never picked it up before. Even when it's already a Even huge hit. when we had people shouting in the streets. Right. <laughs> so, um, but we went to Peter, and he was, you know, I'm very thrilled that he was so rewarded for his faith because he went right out on a limb for us. And it was a great deal of money of their budget to, you know, promise to this one show. Um, but, you know, happily, it all came back buttered toast. But, uh, you know, I like people when they're brave, you know, and when people 
give you a job where it's kind of all the insurance is there. Right, right. You, you admire them less than when someone goes into battle for you. And he went into battle. Well, you now, just to, you know, connect it back to Gosford Park in a sense, I guess you must have enjoyed the, the way of writing of having so many overlapping stories and many characters and all of that because you had, I think, 18 for the first series, 18 principal characters at least. And in terms of developing them and giving them personalities and knowing how they would think, I have read that you actually drew upon relationships that you had with people as, as a child who most kids would have not ever really conversed with all that much or had the curiosity to pick their brain. But you basically knew the equivalent of the Maggie Smith character and people like that and, and were able to recall some of the things that they told you, right? Well, I was very fortunate that I got interested in all this stuff when I was young, when I was a child. Because when I was a child, I still had a lot of great aunts alive and cousins who were like great aunts and so on. And I would talk to them about their lives when they were girls, when they were young married women and so on. All of which, I mean, my eldest great aunt, Isie, who was my grandfather's eldest sister, um, was born in 1880, which makes her 10 years older than Mary Crawley. <laughs> and I knew her really well. She only died when I was 21. Right, right. And so I would talk about where their houses had been and where they'd lived in London and where they'd lived in the country and blah, 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 blah. My brothers were not interested, you know, in any of that stuff. By the time they did get interested, in their 40s, everyone was dead. Mm -hmm. And so I do consider myself very fortunate. And I would learn about family history and family things and what was this and who is he and who is she and all that. And so I did bring a lot of that. But I think it was Evelyn Waugh who said writers don't make much up. <laughs> and, and in the end, you're like a squirrel, you know, you have all this stuff in your pouch and you bring it out gradually as you as you write and situate. I mean, it's never as simple to say, oh, that character is my great aunt, that character is a neighbor we live near in Sussex, because you're taking incidents, situations, particular relationships. Sometimes you change their sex, sometimes you change their age, whatever it is. Um, so they're not portraits in that way, but they are the starting point. Why do you think this show, which is basically, uh, absent of any sex and violence and the things that everybody thinks draw people to movies and other things today, why would it go over so well with so many people uh, all over the world, different parts of the world, and when along the line, aside from the ratings, did you realize that it had really clicked? I mean, if people recall, there were loving spoofs from George Clooney oh, yeah, and LeBron yeah, really. James and all over the place. I Saturday think, Night Live. Saturday Night Live. Yeah. So... Why did it click, and when did you realize that this was not your even your usual hit? This was a, a different sort of thing. Um, we had an early sign, because normally, uh, in Britain at any rate, I don't know if it's true here, but I suspect it is, when they've got a new series, they have a big pump of PR, and there are posters and trailers, and yada da 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 and lots of people sitting on the breakfast sofa <laughs> on TV and so on. And that means you get a good figure for the first episode. You then lose the people who don't really like it. It's not their thing. And you go down. <laughs> and then in the third week, you start to get the people who hear about it and they would like it. And if it's a hit, it goes on up. And then you have a hit. 
and we went up two and a half million in the second week. <laughs> and that they thought there'd been a mistake in the counting because that absolutely never happens. And I remember about four weeks in, I was reading the Times and there was, I opened the Times, there was this big picture of the three girls. And I thought, what's this? What's the story? And over it, it said, um, George Osborne, who's the Chancellor, you know, George Osborne belongs in the cast of Downton Abbey. And it was an attack on the Chancellor for some policy or other. And I realised then that we were getting into the zeitgeist. We were getting into what they call the, converse, the national conversation. And we were, soon we were an adjective, you know, very Downton Abbey and all that sort of thing. And we started having characters in other shows talking about it. And eventually, of course, we had in Transformers, you know, the guards watching Downton Abbey during one sequence and all that. And in those moments, you do realize you become part of the common culture, that you are a reference point, even for people who don't particularly watch it. They know from the title what, what you're signifying by using the title. Right. And I liked all that. I thought it was very flattering and enjoyable. And, uh, and it was fun to be at the center of a kind of phenomenon. I think for the actors, too, I think they all enjoyed it. Sure. Um, I mean, by the end, they were ready to move on, particularly the young ones. Right, right. Because, you know, you're told by every fan magazine that you're a star. But are you? Right. They want to you, test You've got to go out and find waters. out, right. you know, and, and test your wings and everything. And I don't object to that. I, good luck to them all. Right. I hope they all have terrific careers. Now, one of the absolutely amazing things about this, most TV series that have any length of a run have writer's rooms where there's many, many people that are weighing in and contributing and all that. On Downton Abbey, the writer's room was, was your office, basically, <laughs> meaning you. And I believe you wrote every single episode of the six seasons. Uh, and that itself is amazing. But I just want to, if we can just quickly ask a few logistical questions about how that works. First of all, uh, how far ahead of what was on the air would you have written? Well, what I tried to do each year, because I did by the end of six years of it fall into a kind of rhythm. Yeah. I would start writing in about September. First of all, we had meeting, you know, we'd, I'd meet Gareth and uh, Liz Truebridge, who was the, our other producer, and the three of us, I would, describe what I thought were the main storylines. They would comment, they would make suggestions, whatever. Then Gareth and I would go to ITV and we would talk. I remember once we had to take out a storyline because almost exactly the same thing was happening on Mr. Selfridge <laughs> um, and that kind of thing. Right. Then I would start writing and I would start in September and by February, which was the read through, I would have four or five four ready to shoot, five probably one draft off ready to shoot, maybe a bit more. Then from then on, I'm writing against the filming schedule. And so at the beginning, it's fine because they were done in blocks of two. The guy's doing one and two, they're prepping three and four. I'm writing six and seven, mm -hmm. you know. But of course, by the end, the filming starts to catch up with you. And by the time I'm doing the two-hour Christmas special, uh, at the end of the filming, right. I'm getting the, we've got to know the new location, we've got to know costumes, we've got to know which new character, you know, the casting's got to know. Blah, 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 right. blah. And by then it was pretty frenetic every now, year. Would you even, if it hasn't been written, would you know at the outset of the season roughly an outline of where it's going? Yes. 
you knew where the principal characters were going to end up. I wouldn't say it never changed. Sometimes it did change. But as a general rule, those were adhered to. The smaller plots were I'd make up as I was going on sure. along. But but the main direction, you know, was Mary going to be here or there? I mean, the one big adjustment in the whole job, actually, was when um, Dan Stevens wanted to leave. The thing was that Jessica Brown Findlay, who played Sybil, had said right from the beginning she was doing the three years, because in England you can only get actors for a maximum of three years. Mm -hmm. They will then only review for a ma renew for a maximum of two years. So it's not like here where you can get five years right. at the beginning. And we got to the end of three years and um, Jessica was leaving and Siobhan was leaving, who played O'Brien. Well, a servant was no problem because they got another job. Right. The family was a problem if they were never going to be seen again. Right. <laughs> um, because that meant the Grim Reaper. Right. But uh, Jessica had announced this and I researched and I found out about eclampsia, which was still a big killer in the 20s. Mm -hmm. They didn't come up with a... You had, once you'd started to fit, you had no chance of survival at all mm -hmm. until the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So I don't think most people know that. No. And um, it got a lot of attention for the eclampsia society, which is great. It's still a very serious condition. People think it's gone. It hasn't gone. So all of that fitted. And for me, dramatically, it had this incredible bonus that it was very common for the woman to start fitting, have the baby, and then there would be a period of calm when it seemed that she was going to be okay. And that might last for an hour, two hours, three hours, and then the fits would start again and then she would die. And that gave me a happy ending followed by a sad ending. Which, of course, was great. Right, I know, right. I don't want to sound heartless. No, but, uh, hey, you've got to write an episode. got to write an episode here. <laughs> so that was all fine, and it was written and cast, and we were very thrilled, and Tim Pickett-Smith was coming to do the, the bad doctor as opposed to the good local mm -hmm. doctor. Everything was great. And then we got to the read-through, and Dan decided he wanted to leave too. And he was in completely within his rights. I, I say that immediately. Um, he, he had thought about it. He'd been offered a play on Broadway. He had a movie offer. Um, he, you know, all sorts of things had happened. And I, I was an actor for many years, and I know that an actor must follow their gut because there's nothing else to follow. You know, there are no rules. There, there are no likelihoods. You can go backwards as easily as you can go forwards, and you have to do what your heart is telling you. So I didn't blame him at all, but the problem was I now had to kill someone else because when <laughs> you're a young man, you've just had a baby, right. you're happily married, you're an heir to a great estate, right. you're never seen again. There's only one answer for this. <laughs> and if, if I'd known before, I probably would have killed them both in a crash right, or something. Right, right, right. But I couldn't, and I, I knew that we were going to have this long anguish after Sybil and Cora was going to blame Hugh and uh, Robert uh, Grantham and, and all this going to go. And I thought, we can't do another's memorials and funerals and da-da-da. And the only way I could get out of all that was to kill him in the last shot of the series <laughs> and then have a six-month time jump right. before we start right. again. So then all that's done. Right. And then Mary 
is instead of spending the whole series in tears, right. is in the process of rebuilding her life, which was much more interesting Worked to Michelle out. anyway. Right. So all of that was great. That was the solution. It's going to be great. Great, except that you, like with the rape of Anna, heard plenty from people about uh, these terrible things that have befallen these characters who everybody loved. Well, even worse, <laughs> in Great Britain... The last episode is shown on Christmas. So they were sitting there on Christmas night, eating that one mince pie too many, and suddenly, boff, their favorite character is dead. You you whacked them. So the letters I got, you know, from all of that was just absolutely unbelievable. But I mean, nevertheless, it had to be... The Anna Anna story um, was a different thing. Um, I had long had an ambition to have a rape story where there was no blame at all attached to the character who was attacked. Uh, Because when I was young, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but when I was young, there was always a slight sense of what did she think she was doing going out at that time of night? Why was she wearing that skirt? Why was she on her own? You know, know, all that stuff to spread the blame, Mm -hmm. which was very unjust. Mm And I wanted a story where there was no question that there was a spread of blame. And Anna had done nothing wrong. All she had been was friendly. She'd been polite and friendly. And that was her reward. And of course it was shocking. I mean, I had a very interesting thing that one woman came up to me and said, what I didn't understand was why you re-edited it between seeing it on Sunday night, and they used to re-show it on the following Sunday afternoon in England. And I said, what do you mean we re-edited it? And she said, oh, well, you took out all the violent scenes. Well, of course, we hadn't re-edited it. The violent scenes were in her head and not on the screen. We didn't actually, if you you watch it, 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 it's all in your imagination where it's happening. But for Downton, we were interested not in the violent event, we, you know, like watching Matthew in a car crash. We didn't see that, we just saw him afterwards. Right. Because we were interested in exploring the emotional knock-on effects of these events. Uh, so it was never a violent show to watch in it, it, ever. But that was very interesting because I got a lot of letters, uh, some of which were very moving, actually, from women who had been attacked at some point in their life. Many of them had never confessed it, had kept it to themselves but felt that if they had confessed it, there would have been some blame attached to them. And, I mean, I don't make claims for television. You know, I do understand that we're not curing cancer. But nevertheless, in those moments, you do feel you have perhaps done something slightly good. Sure. I was glad of that. No, it's great. And so when it comes time, you, I guess you perhaps in consultation with others, uh, decided sixth season is going to be it. Got to wrap this up. What were the other, if any, series finales that you consulted in terms of just seeing how they did it? And, and also, uh, did you always in, always know it was going to be a, a, a pretty happy ending for most of the surviving characters at that point? Was that important to you that it be that way? Wrapping it up was, of course, a big issue as you can imagine I mean funny enough originally we intended to end it after five but when we got to five there seemed to be too much material to do uh, and we wanted to have a whole 
series that was essentially a wrap-up series. So we could tie up Carson's story or whatever. We didn't all have to be in the last episode. Mm -hmm. um, so having made that decision, um, we then moved into this series of wrap-ups. Um, I have watched, you know, quite a few final episodes and um, I, sometimes I think they get it better than other times. I thought um, the very end of West Wing was very good. Yeah. Um, one or two others of series I've loved. I, where I feel there is a difference in the last episode and with Downton, because we always had this, I don't know how it was done here, but we always had this two-hour episode at the end of the series in Britain. And so you have a long movie-length yeah. episode to, to do it. Um, was I feel up to the last episode, there's always a side of you that is writing to attract other viewers, to bring more people on board. You're trying to make the episode enjoyable for people who've never seen another episode right, of Downton right, Abbey. Right. They're in a hotel in Wichita, they turn on the television, <laughs> oh, this is that Downton Abbey they're all right, talking about. Right. And so you always try to give it a slightly broader base and some stories contained within the episode so a newcomer can enjoy, enjoy it. But I didn't feel that about the last episode. I thought, no, this last episode is for our faithful viewers who have followed us for some part of six years or all of it, mm -hmm. and they are now entitled to have a show that is for them. Right. And I felt that most of our viewers wanted reasonably happy endings for most of these characters. Yeah, I think that's because right. you've gone uphill and down dale with them. You've, you know, people have died, people have been attacked, terrible romances have gone wrong. One guy was even murdered, you know. You've lived through this maelstrom of human horror. Right. And you just want these characters you have loved taken to a safe place where they can live their lives. Right. And I didn't fight that. Right. Um, obviously, I wanted a happy ending for Edith and... Um, a certain glee in me wanted her to outrank Mary at the end right. so that she would be the <laughs> right. senior great lady in an even larger house right. that rather right. appealed to me after all that Edith has been through. But uh, I mean, I freely acknowledge that, of course, you get fond of these characters. You know, you build them up, you live with them for years. And I didn't want them condemned to a perpetual malaise <laughs> in wherever that murky place right. is that TV characters go to when you can't see them anymore. Sure. With, with our very short remaining time, I just have three very brief things, if I may. Uh, first of all, have we seen the last of, of the Downton characters? I know that I believe ITV and NBC asked you to, they were hoping you would go longer, uh, and why not? It's been so great for, for them as well. But that, that wasn't going to happen, but you are open to a movie version? Oh, no, I'm completely open to a movie version. And, and I've even thought about a movie version, because I don't want to be caught unaware. Right, right, you know, right, they right. say, right, go. You know? <laughs> um, so you've thought. But, through. I mean, I don't make the final decision uh, of production. You know, right. I, I'm, I've said I'm willing, but that's as much as I can do. Additionally, whereas I think a lot of people would take a year or two vacation after wrapping up such a uh, marathon of a project, you have, if I can just list, uh, followed the previous Broadway uh, 
adventure of Mary Poppins with School of Rock. We were at the Tonys last night. You were nominated for uh, for that and, and for a terrific show uh, that you did with Andrew Lloyd Webber doing the music. You did the book. This is not the most obvious, as you've said, <laughs> uh, but that was one thing. Belgravia, which is essentially taking... A, another look at, at class divisions using an older form of storytelling, the serialized novel, with the most modern way of releasing things, the app. Uh, Dr. Thorne, since May, has been on Amazon, a four-part miniseries that, again, looks at a different angle of uh, class class divisions and comes back to Anthony Trollope, who you mentioned earlier. Well, it's really... I love Trollope. I'm a big yeah. fan of Trollope. And I, and I find his morality, his philosophy... Uh, very close to my own. I don't put myself in his category, but, uh, you know, I really appreciate his work and I would like to see more of it on television instead of it always being Jane Austen. I mean, I love Jane Austen too, you know. I love Dickens. Right. But rather than always doing the same books. Yeah, right. So that's one. And then now uh, I know they announced it a little earlier than you might have liked because it's put some pressure on you, but there's the NBC uh, drama series of The Gilded Age, which we have to look forward to. So I guess the question is, you know, you could have been on a beach in, in Hawaii or something. Instead, you went full speed ahead, uh, You and you have now a lot to show for that post-Downton already. Uh, how does that feel? Well, you know, when you've been an actor, it's very difficult to say no, because <laughs> you spend so long waiting for someone to right. invite you to do almost anything. Right. Um, and I think I'm not good at saying no. I think I'm getting better. But, I mean, I don't look down on the week on the beach. I hope I get a week on the beach <laughs> at some point. At the moment, I'm trying to clear my desk of different things I've said yes to so that I can go clean into Gilded Age. And I'm not trying to do seven things at once. You know, that can be quite draining when you're, you've got all these balls in the air and you're trying to do different drafts of this and that and the other. Um, I love the idea of Gilded Age. And, in fact, part of this weekend, I've been over for the Tonys, I've spent walking around uh, the Upper East Side seeing what remains of the Gilded Age houses. Great many of them were demolished, particularly the ones on Fifth Avenue. But if you just take a step or two back from Fifth Avenue, lots of them survive. And, and the bigger ones are all parts of institutions or cultural centers or embassies or consulates, or whatever. but they're still there. And so I've been sort of bathing in the world of the Gilded Age sure. uh, as a kind of taster. Now, society today uh, versus the even just not, not so long ago, the, the grandmother that you uh, mentioned having a relationship with or not, uh, you know, people that within your memory, they live very differently today. We have virtually no rules in society that any, at least that anyone adheres to on a regular basis. Uh, and I wonder if you regard this, since you're somebody who's really thought about class uh, more than most of us just in the course of exploring it in so many different ways, is it a good thing or a bad thing that it's changed in the way that it has? Is society uh, today, without these rules, uh, a better place than it was when, when they existed? Well, better and worse. I'm not sure how meaningful those words are. I mean, society evolves, you know, and it keeps changing and reinventing itself. And society always likes to present itself as having timeless values. But in fact, it doesn't have very many timeless values. Everything is changing all the time. I I think for the modern psyche, um, a very important element is social mobility. And one of the areas where our society is falling down, I make no judgment of America, 
is that our social mobility has rather dried up and it, we are less socially mobile than we were half a century ago, which I think is a fairly serious indictment. Um, it's partly our schooling, it's partly the enormous amounts of money that have suddenly arrived uh, at the upper part of society, but you're really getting a kind of two-world thing again. And um, I don't think that's very helpful. I mean, I love people to make money and have lovely houses and have lovely lives, but the only way that is acceptable is if to some level or other that is accessible. Right. And um, at the moment, I don't think it's accessible enough, even to men and women coming out of a working class background who are brilliant, brilliantly talented, brilliantly clever, just to get the tools to make their potential flower, to make things happen, is very difficult for them at the moment. Obviously, some people manage it, but I would rather more managed it, and I would rather we made it easier for them to manage it, and we had better ladders in place. Apart from that, the only thing I do think we haven't got quite right is I don't think we are happier when we have no rules of behavior. I don't think actually this has anything to do with class. I'm not talking about whether you know how to eat lobster or address a duchess. <laughs> I'm talking about a sort of manner towards each other, customs that are observed at every level, a sort of politeness. I mean, dress. Dress at the moment seems to me to have gone completely off piste and sometimes wandering around at an event like last night where we both were, you, you look at people and you think, I wonder if you quite know the effect that your outfit has <laughs> uh, in, in, in the glare of day. Right, right. You know, um, I just sometimes I'm nostalgic for slightly more order. Right. I don't think it's to do with people being better or worse than right. anyone else. It's just kind of, it's like, you know, casual chic. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, if it says shorts, right. if it says black tie, we know what that means. Right. This is open to interpretation. So much of it is just, and then, right. you know, all it means really is that your wife's on the telephone for two hours trying to find out what everyone else is going to wear. <laughs> well, the very last thing is this. Uh, I was wondering, uh, you were you were born into a certain class, as we acknowledged, a certain way of life, and maybe you didn't have to drive yourself as hard as you have and certainly at, and continue to drive yourself. Uh, you work very hard. You've produced an amazing amount of, of, of great content. And I just wonder for you, if you were to almost psychoanalyze yourself, is part of this coming back to class about showing that uh, you are as... That that, that, that that is not some you're not somebody that wants to rest on your laurel or your or, or the equivalent of a title or whatever but it's important to you to show that class alone would not be uh, is not something to uh, that you are comfortable hanging your hat on but that you would rather uh, show that look you're you've earned the you've earned your place in the world and you've you know you've through through hard work that like anyone else. Funnily enough, I don't think that was true of me. I think my, I am very driven, too driven. And if I look, you know that thing when they say, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would say, calm down. <laughs> but so uh, I am, I acknowledge a workaholic and all of those things, but it comes from something different. When I was young, I had three elder brothers. The, the older two were so much older. My eldest brother was 12 years old. I was eight, he was 20. So we were living completely different lives. Right. But my next brother up, 
was very, very, very good looking. He looked like, do you remember an actor called Terence Stamp? Of course. He was very like Terence Stamp and he was asked to model in magazines and record records and, you know, da 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 da. I was as plain as a pike staff. <laughs> and I had none of that. They, nobody wanted to dance with me. Right. You know, uh, I remember when I was young, I overheard a conversation between two girls. One girl saying to the other, I haven't got enough boys for my party. And the other one saying, why don't you ask the fellows brothers? And she said, yeah, well, I would, but to get the good looking one, you have to have the dull, ugly one. So that was my motivator because I knew I might be ugly, but I wasn't dull. And I, this wasn't coming across, right. clearly, <laughs> but I had to get it across right. that I was the interesting one and they couldn't see it. My mother could see it. I mean, I, she loved us both, but right. my mother could see it. Right. But I couldn't make other people see it. And that was the start of it, much more than any class I was very interested by. Right. I observed and everything, but it wasn't in my gut. Right. Being passed over when I was the interesting one, that was in my gut. <laughs> and that, I think, was the beginning of the fire. Well, this has been anything but dull, so I thank you very much and, and really appreciate your time. And I've loved everything you've done that I've seen, and I look forward to seeing a lot more. So thank oh, you very that's much. very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you.